Welcome to Global Minnesota Podcast, connecting, informing, and engaging Minnesotans with the world and exploring important international issues. For a complete list of programs and to join us, visit globalminnesota.org. It's World Refugee Month, and um, here at Netzekelem, we really aim to commemorate both the experiences of refugees and their contributions to our societies. Um, Netzekelem means we speak in Arabic, and we provide employment to refugees and displaced persons through opportunities in the language sector. We have language lessons in Arabic, Persian, French, and Spanish. We have cultural exchange sessions, school and university programming, and translation services. To date, our conversation partners have self-generated almost $800,000 in income through our programs. So thank you so much for taking part today. It's my pleasure now to introduce our speaker who has been um, with the Netzekelem team as an Arabic conversation partner since the very beginning. Gaith is originally from Hama, Syria, and due to the conflict, he now lives in Padua, Italy, where he studies political science and international relations. In his free time, he loves to talk about politics and play chess. His writing has been featured in the Middle East Eye and Syria Deeply, among other publications, and he's been interviewed um, for features in the Washington Post, the Guardian and more. I'm really grateful that he's our colleague at Netzekelem and take it away. Thank you so much. Thanks, Danica. Thanks, everyone. I'm, I'm very happy to be with you today. It's a pleasure to meet you all. And thanks for having me, for allowing me, for giving me this opportunity to talk and to uh, share my experience with you all. Uh, as Danica said, I, my name is Gaif Al-Halak. I'm from Syria, from uh, the province of Hama, from a small city called Salamia in the center of Syria. Uh, I uh, live today in Italy, in the city of Padua. I work with Natakalam um, since 2015, since the beginning, the earlier beginning of the project. And I study today political science, international relations and human rights in the University of Padua. I left Syria in 2013 to Lebanon, where I stayed for about three years, and then I moved to Italy in 2016. Uh, I'll go back a little bit in the history before the, the war in Syria to talk about myself and how I, I was forced to leave my country. Uh, in Syria, as you know, everyone has to, uh, to join the army when he reaches a specific age. And uh, uh, it's mandatory in Syria. The service in Syria is mandatory. And uh, I was studying computer information systems in Syria when they asked me to join the army because when you reach 25 years, you can't postpone this anymore. So I uh, joined the army to do my service because as I thought, uh, it's something I have to do later or sooner. And um, it's a duty in general. So I joined the army in 2010, a month before the starting of the revolution in Syria. Uh, everything was normal in the beginning, but then the revolution started and uh, the situation has changed in that time. My service was in a communication center belonged to the army close to the capital Damascus. But because of uh, the situation, because, because of the uh, 
of the conflict in Syria, they started sending us, for example, to some checkpoints or to some patrols uh, uh, to do some battles, which was something um, a little bit difficult to me, um, as I I was not like uh, I'm not used to do this usually there. Uh, at the same time, it was something against my beliefs. I can explain why, because when the revolution started in Syria, people, uh, we know it's kind of civil war today, not a revolution, but it started as a revolution. People were in streets asking for their democracy, uh, asking for their rights, asking for uh, equality, for a better life in Syria, like all countries. But the response was always the, uh, the violence, which led to the uh, to carrying weapon later from people. Uh, in, in that period, uh, my brothers, my family, my dad were joining these uh, demonstrations against the Syrian regime. And uh, three of them were, were arrested in that time. Uh, in the same period, I was serving in the army. It was kind of uh, internal conflict inside me, like I'm serving the people or the man who arrested my family. That was so difficult to me. In that period, I started thinking to leave, to escape from the army because it's not my place anymore. And I did enjoy the army for, for defending the throne for someone or for some person or for some uh, sects in Syria or for a specific group. I joined the army to defend my country or to protect my country. But it became like Syrians kill Syrians. That was the situation in that period. And I didn't want to be a part of that. Maybe one day, I thought in this way, maybe one day I will be forced to kill someone who might be innocent. And I didn't want to do this. Uh, so I, uh, as a, let's say, uh, or let's use the, the term, I deserted from the army in that time. But it was after a long story. Uh, one day, a group or, um, yeah, a group of the opposition of the rebels, an extremist group actually besieged our unit where I was serving in the army. And that siege uh, lasted for about two months. And during these two months, we, uh, everything was, was over, like the food, the medicine, the drink, everything. We had nothing. We started to eat some grasses in some period on, or to eat like tree leaves just to, to survive. Uh, it was a very difficult period for me and for my colleagues as, as well. And uh, one day, of course, we were getting some uh, bombs and they were targeting us inside our unit. And one day I got injured uh, because of some shrapnels. There was a bomb and some shrapnels entered my head. I was in a coma for about 24 hours and then I woke up to find myself in a room, kind of medical or like treatment room. Um, the situation was very bad. There is no uh, there's nothing there. I can't say that it's a place where you can uh, really stay uh, safe. Uh, two months later, they broke the siege. The regime forces were able to break the siege and they took me to a hospital, to a military hospital in uh, close to the capital, Damascus. And there the uh, doctors, um, I had kind of, uh, surgery, not, not very dangerous, just to remove these shrapnels from my head because some of them entered my head. Until today, there are six shrapnels inside my head until today, uh, but uh, they are stable, so they cause nothing, actually. They became like a part of my bones, and uh, 
doctors advised me even here in Italy that if you try to remove them, that would be dangerous or put you at risk, your life. So uh, I just forgot them, they cause nothing, they are stable. The only problem just when I travel in the airport on the metal detecting, <laughs> sometimes I cause some noises, but I have a report now for this problem, so I can pass without any problem anyway. Uh, doctors after that gave me about uh, two months to recover. Uh, and after these two months, I have to join my unit again. But it was like the chance to me because I'm at home again. So I planned to my escape or to my uh, traveling. And I chose Lebanon because the only way that was open, I bet some smugglers, of course, to pass the border to, to arrive safe to Lebanon because as a soldier, I can't pass the border uh, legally. So I bet some smugglers, they helped me to reach Lebanon. I arrived in Lebanon in August, 2013 after a long trip actually between mountains. Uh, and in the first period, I thought that everything is okay now, I'm safe. But I faced another problem in Lebanon that I am a refugee without paper, without, without documents. I entered Lebanon Ill illegally, so I have no job permission. I have no, uh, I can't move freely. I was just trying to avoid some checkpoints because if, I, if they ask me about my Documents, I, I have no documents, they will put me in jail, which happened later. They arrested me one day for uh, about 10 days, and then some friends helped me to get out, and they guaranteed me. But the Lebanese forces uh, or security forces gave me just one week to leave the country or to go back to Syria, which was impossible. Both choices were impossible to me. So I just continued living, living in Hyde. That was the period when I started writing some articles and uh, reporting about Syria to some Western uh, websites from my experience and from my sources, because I was looking for a job that I can do it at home without moving for the reasons that I mentioned for, because I have no documents. But uh, as a freelance journalist, you can't, uh, you can't depend on this, especially in Lebanon. So, uh, because it's not a stable job, it's not uh, that source or that income to me. Uh, that was my job until 2015. I lived in Hyde for three years in Lebanon, just like without document, without papers, without uh, residence, just uh, doing everything online uh, to survive, to live. And in 2015, when Natakalam when started, the startup of Natakalam, uh, I heard about the project from uh, a friend of mine. And I emailed them, they interviewed me online, and uh, I started with them in 2015 until today. We were only three teachers in the beginning in Natakalam. I guess today we are more than 100 uh, teachers in four languages. Uh, it was an amazing uh, experience, an amazing job to me, a perfect job actually, because uh, I can do it at home without any problem, causing no risk. And uh, I can, uh, it, it gave me a good uh, income actually in that time. So I can say that I survived since that time because of this project, because of Natakalam. Until today, it's my main source. I pay to my university because of Natakalam now. I pay to my house for renting because of Natakalam. So I, I can say that it changed my life, this project. Uh, but I kept trying to travel to leave Lebanon, not because I'm in a bad situation. Economically, I was kind of a good situation after starting doing this job with Natakalam, teaching Arabic and translating. So, but I was not safe. I, I wanted to be in a place that I can move without fear. 
So I started to email the embassies, the organizations explaining my story. I emailed many embassies, many, many organizations in that time, but uh, the first response were, were, was from Italy, actually. They interviewed me, uh, the project called Humanitarian Corridor or the Organization of Humanitarian Corridor. They uh, listened to my story and uh, uh, they put me in touch with the Italian embassy. And finally I got the visa and I came here to Italy in uh, October 2016, which is about four years from now. Um, it was totally a different life here because uh, the culture is different, the life is different, the uh, customs, the, the language, there were many challenges actually there. But I kept uh, trying because I had a dream. I, I was not able to graduate in Syria because of the situation, so I wanted to uh, continue my studies here and I chose the political science because something it's something I, I really like and close to my thoughts. Um, I, it was the first year was just Italian courses. I attended very intensive Italian courses to pass the acceptance uh, test to the university and I passed it finally. And uh, I joined the university two years ago. Uh, as I told you, I study international relations and human rights in the Department of Political Science in the city of Padova. Um, during that period, the, the Humanitarian Corridor Organization was responsible about my life. They offered me house in the first period and uh, the courses, the language courses and uh, kind of uh, uh, aid, monthly aid as well. Uh, until I finished my contract with them because the contract is just for one year and a half as a single person and it's two years and a half for the families. So I... In it's about like three years ago or two years and a half, I left the project and uh, I continued alone. Today, I, I rented a house with uh, two of my friends. They are Italian. We study together in the same department. We live together uh, here. And uh, I'm still doing my job with Natakellam, as I told you, uh, and I enjoy it. Um, this kind of teaching or this kind of job online, it's not like, uh, just a student and teacher, honestly. Because uh, especially when I was in Lebanon, spending most of my time at home because of the fear, because of uh, my concerns of getting arrested again. So uh, I had no friends, honestly, in Lebanon, like just two or three friends in Lebanon. But through this small screen, I created a lot of friendships in many countries. I, I was able to, to see everything, to follow everything happening in this world, uh, talking with my students in Arabic about their countries, about my country, about their experiences, about the, everything, the political situation, the social situation, social movements in, in every place in this world, about the daily life. So uh, it was at the same time kind of uh, cultural exchange to me, not only teaching and and learning Arabic. Um, of course, now I'm, I, uh, I'm, I'm very proud and I'm happy to say that I worked with more than 130 students in these five years in more than 17 countries for more than 15 nationalities. I worked with them. Most of them speaks, uh, speak a very good Arabic. Some of them became reporters to New York Times, to uh, France 24, to the Le Monde, the France uh, uh, the, France news, uh, the French newspaper, 
and uh, they are reporters to these platforms in the Middle East now. They speak a very good Arabic. They are reporting in Arabic sometimes. So uh, yeah, this is quickly what I wanted to say, to explain. I will not tell every single detail because uh, of the time, but of course, I would be happy to answer questions if you have any question. And uh, yeah, I will let uh, the moderator of the session continue now. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much, guys. Wow, what a what a, a fascinating uh, story, and some of the, the the challenges that you've overcome, and and the, and where you've where you've ended up now. Um, I would like to invite uh, Mary Dawson, a program associate with the GHR Foundation, now to join us. Uh, uh, Mary will uh, will moderate the Q and A. That I see we're already getting some through the chat uh, function. Again, please. Uh, if you have any questions uh, for Gaith, just send them through the chat, and Mary will uh, will pose them uh, pose them to Gaith to, uh, during the Q and A portion here. Uh, but I just want to mention, uh, as part of uh, introduction to Mary, is is uh, the wonderful partnership that Global Minnesota uh, enjoys with the GHR Foundation. And Mary, please share a little bit about uh, GHR and the Bridge Builder uh competition that that you brought uh, our attention uh to uh not to column and and which has resulted in this program here today but uh thank you again mary for for uh representing not a column and and doing the moderating for us here today thank you so much for that kind introduction it is a delight to be here together with not the column and uh and to hear guys uh story um, GHR Foundation is a private foundation in Minneapolis. The family uh, started the Opus uh, Build Design Group. Um, currently, the foundation has four uh, primary areas, um, keeping children and families, so out of institutions, uh, investing in Alzheimer's research, um, working with the Catholic Network, and supporting Catholic education in the Twin Cities, K through 12, and higher education. Our Bridge Builder Program was a three-year initiative um, to bridge people, ideas, um, organizations, um, in a way to uh, elevate Pope Francis's message uh, that the world can be a better place if we build bridges between ourselves. Um, and Not the Column was one of the top first top ideas uh, in 2017 that was funded. Um, and we were thrilled to be a partner with them. And uh, it enabled us to also build out a relationship with Global Minnesota. Um, and I know Chris Berger, our communications director, enjoys a, a wonderful relationship with Global Minnesota. But I would like to get to the questions. Um, so uh, guys, I don't know if you wanna turn your video on while I'm talking, um, but uh, the first question that we got on the, on the chat was- It was a mistake, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Um, uh, Anna would like to know, do you know where your family is and um, have you seen them or are you able to have regular contact with them in Syria? Uh, well, we, have, we have two brothers and my parents. Uh, all of my brothers left Syria before me, actually. The two of them, after they got arrested and they were released, they, they, they uh, left the country because it was possible to, to be arrested again. So uh, one of them left to Lebanon and the other uh, left to uh, Turkey. And then the, uh, the third one left to Turkey as well. And I was the last one left to Lebanon. So we, we were two in Lebanon, two in Turkey and uh, my parents in Syria. 
uh, honestly, my parents were my last concern because especially as a soldier who, who left the army, they tried a lot to uh, to annoy them or to like the security forces or kind of revenge or something like that because they consider me as a traitor, you know. So uh, they faced a lot because of that. So we, we, uh, we kept trying to uh, bring them here to Europe after we, we came here to Europe. And thanks God, two years ago, they arrived in France. They got asylum in France. They are today in France, my parents. And uh, my uh, I have a brother in France as well. And I have, I have a brother in Milan here in Italy. And the last one still in Turkey, in Istanbul, where he worked as a programmer and website designer. So all of my family today is out of uh, Syria. I visit my parents uh, like today due to the COVID-19. It's uh, it's, it was difficult to travel, but they opened the border now. But usually, every, like every four or five months, I, I travel there. I stay for a week or ten days in their house. I see them and I go back to Italy. It's very easy to travel here in Europe, just like two hours by plane to, to reach there. So yeah, thanks God, all of them are safe today. That's a wonderful story to hear that your family has re been reunited um, after uh, months or years of separation. Family is so important. Um, Abdullah would like to know what were your dreams um, while you were when you were still living in Syria. Uh, you mentioned not being able to graduate. Um, so what were you studying? What were you hoping to? What What was the life you were dreaming of in Syria before you had to leave? Yeah. Uh, the The education system or the university education system is in Syria is a little bit different from Europe or from the US. Uh, because you don't study what what you like to study or what you prefer, or you don't follow your dream. Because always it's up to your marks in the high school. Like if you get a high marks, for example, you are able to study medicine, engineering, like the second uh, level, let's say level, allow to allow you to study law or uh, computer systems, for example, or something. And so. My dream was to study political science, actually, or journalism in Syria, but my marks didn't allow me to do this. So I had three choices to study law or uh, computer information systems and uh, uh, geography in that time. So I, I, I just choose the computer systems because it's not because I, I, I really like it, but because I hate the other options. So I just joined that. So uh, and uh, yeah, it was not bad, actually. It was, I mean, kind of uh, beautiful three years in the University of Aleppo where I was studying in the first period. But uh, as I told you, here in Italy, I, uh, I was able to follow my dream and to join the, the, the field that I really like to, to be in. And to, I did, again. Uh, that's really interesting to hear that law, geography, and computer science are all sort of one entry level. Kind of, yeah, very, very clear. <laughs> thank you, thank you for sharing that. Um, uh, Karen would like to know what Middle Eastern countries have been most welcoming to Syrian refugees, and I'm guessing you have personal experience with Lebanon and Turkey to your family. But do you know of other? Do you have other friends that also left, and who you've been able to recontact with? Yeah, reconnect. Uh, of course, the first country is Turkey today. Well, there there are about four million Syrians today after the war. 
So uh, number two is Lebanon, of course. There are more than two millions in Lebanon. And uh, in a country like Lebanon, where the population, the Lebanese population is four millions, you have two and a half million of Syrians. That's wow. a very big number, actually. Uh, of course, th that happened after the war. Uh, in the third uh, place, I think Jordan, wh where there are about a million or 900,000 maybe. Then we have Iraq and Egypt. And then most of them are in Europe, yeah, the refugees. But in the Middle East, number one, I think Turkey and Lebanon in the second. And place. would you say that those countries are welcoming to refugees or is it a difficult situation for refugees? Well, I believe that no one helps the Syrian refugees because they want to help. Always there are like uh, maybe political uh, benefits or economic benefits, something like that. They always use, honestly, like for example, for me, Turkey always use the refugees as uh, play cards to, to put Europe under pressure. Look at the, the news always when there is always any, any political problem between the EU and Turkey. They always say we will open the border. It's like we became like a kind of uh, kind of threatened today or like uh, they, they they threaten using us each other today like we will open the border if you don't do something we want here so uh, I yeah of, of course a lot of people are host like uh, they hosted the, the refugees they were they deal with them in a good way but I mean when I talk as Turkey or these countries as uh, regimes as or governments I will not say that they really wanted to help but they are using us. They, they, they benefit of, uh, of these refugees. Turkey get every year, uh, I don't know how many, how many millions or billions of dollars from EU for, for, uh, for these refugees or in the name of these refugees. But I, uh, that's my opinion. But in general, if you, want, if you look to the people, Turkish people or Lebanese people, you can find, I think, like in America, like in Italy, like in every place, there are some people who prefer to uh, these refugees to live there, and there are others who don't uh, prefer them to come to their country. So it's up to the person or up to, to, to the thoughts, finally. Yeah. Uh, you answered the first part of the question very much like a poli-sci student, <laughs> thinking about the government structures. Um, Sophia would like to know, you started in the military to serve your country and quickly realized uh, that you, you could serve your country in different ways, in better ways. Um, how does your current role of both language teacher and university student in Italy let you uh, be an ambassador of Syria still? Um, in Europe here, there are a lot of misconceptions about the situation in the Middle East or in Syria in, Syria in particular. Uh, people, uh, a lot of people like to talk with someone here who experienced this situation or who is coming from this country. I'm trying always to write articles to explain. I'm trying always to do some seminars. Uh, I do the same thing I'm doing now with you, but face to face in class in some universities here in, 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 uh, in Italy. Uh, I think I have the, this duty, or it's a duty, or it's a responsibility, because I have the chance now to correct these uh, misconceptions or this wrong idea that were spread because of the media, of course. Uh, so uh, this is uh, how I can help my country. I think this is the way I can uh, help my country or to, to be an ambassador to my, to my country here in, in, in Europe. Uh, unfortunately, I can't do anything more than this because I'm always saying that the Syrian uh, issue today is not uh, in Syrian hands. It's not our decision anymore. 
the great powers control the Syrian situation and they decide and they plan everything. So it's not our choice anymore, but we are trying our best to, to fix this as people. And as a follow-on, what are the biggest misconceptions about Syrians, um, either Syrians that are now living as um, uh, displaced persons in Italy or um, in uh, still living in camps in receiving countries? Yeah. Uh, one of these biggest misconceptions that the what happened in Syria was a war or a conflict between the secular regime and the extremists. This is how many people see the Syrian conflict today in Europe and in America, I know this. And uh, which is not true, of course. When the Syrian revolution started, there was no ISIS, there was no Nusra, there was no Islam, Islam army, there was no this extreme, like there was, Everything was uh, from these people, just we were just people, students, workers in the streets asking for a better life. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the first weeks of this revolution, people didn't ask to change this regime. They were asking for democracy and for freedom, expression freedom. In the, but because of the violence or that brutal response from the Syrian regime or security forces, they shoot people, they shoot fire on people in the streets. They killed some kids. In the city of Dara, in the first week, they, they arrested kids and uh, who were uh, 13 or 12 years old, and they tortured them just because they wrote some sentences on the wall in their in their school. So, uh, but people know nothing about this here in Europe. They think that it's a kind of jihadist movement or Islamist movements who want to uh, to create a kingdom, maybe in in uh, in Syria or Islamic state in Syria, which is not true. Of course, we have extremists, like in every place in this world. We have extremists in Syria. We have uh, a lot of uh, uh, radical groups in Syria today. But uh, this is not how it started, and that was not our target. If you look to the to the majority of the Syrian people, they don't accept neither either the regime or uh, or these groups as well. So, if you are against the Syrian regime, it doesn't mean that you you support ISIS. Here, I know a lot of. Christians who uh, who are against the Syrian regime. How can you say that Christian money support or support ISIS, for for example? That's not logical. Here, so you can be in the middle. That's what most people don't understand here, unfortunately, and sadly to say this, but no one no one care about what's going on in Syria today. Here, after ten years of the war, maybe it's the media, the media fault. I don't know, but uh, or maybe just because maybe the death became something uh, like a daily routine. It's something became like a daily routine in, in our life. Mm -hmm. So that's it. Yeah, yeah, we, you, you get used to the same news cycle and you move on. Thank you. Um, wh what are the biggest misconceptions people have about the Syrian people as opposed to the Syrian conflict? Yeah, I can, I can include the first answer at the same time, like, um, of course, I, um, I, I can't generalize, or I will not say that all people think in this way. But uh, I faced this, like uh, when they said, when I said to someone that I don't like this regime, they, they think I'm a kind of extremist person. Mm -hmm. uh, but in, in different, uh, like, uh, uh, let's say, or uh, focus on a different perspective, uh, away from policy, 
there are always this view or this uh, idea that the refugee are these people who came from a tent, who don't know how to write, who don't know how to speak, who are very like ignorant, which is not true. Um, there are doctors, there are professors from Syria. Today are refugees. It was not their choice, but that was that was a situation. It, it was out of their control, actually. So uh, yeah, that could be one of these biggest uh, misconceptions in, in, in uh, about the Syrian refugees. Yeah. No, thank you. I think that was one piece of the Natakalam work that was really highlighted in uh, their bridge builder idea that these exactly. are people with with experiences and with education, and um, we need to honor that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, Evan asked, what were the biggest cultural challenges in moving from, he writes from Lebanon to Italy, but I'm sure it's a whole path from Syria to Italy, Lebanon to Italy. Well, uh, Syria and Lebanon, it's like, the, like a country, like the same country. And in the past, they were one country, actually, before the, the French uh, occupation. Uh, but there, then there was this agreement, Sykes-Picot agreement, where they divided the, the Levant countries to four countries, Palestine and Jordan and Syria and Lebanon. So we have the same culture, we have the same traditions, we have the same uh, life. So I didn't realize the uh, difference in Lebanon. But here in Italy, of course, one of the biggest challenges were the language, actually. Uh, I mean, I speak English, I know my English is not good, but uh, at least I can, I can communicate with people in English. But Italian was a totally different language here. So. But uh, I got that amazing opportunity to live with an Italian family in my first year in, in Italy. The humanitarian corridor allowed me to, or gave me this opportunity, like kind of integration project. So they hosted me for a year in their house. I was like, when you talk with them, when you eat with them, when you speak to them every day, you speak Italian in a very good way and fastly. And that was the, the main reason why I was able to speak Italian in a year and to pass the university test for, uh, yeah, for, for, for the political science. Yeah. Yeah. So I can say the answer is the language, of course. Yeah, <laughs> makes sense. Uh, I'm just going to remind everyone to put your questions in the chat, um, and I will pose them. Um, can you describe a little bit more about life in Syria uh, before you left? What was a typical day like? Um, what were some of your favorite things to do on holidays or weekends? Uh, before the war, I was in the national team of chess, the Syrian national team of chess. So I was always traveling champions and, you know, in championships. And uh, I, I got the third rank in Syria when I was 18, uh, third place on Syria. I, I, I like to play chess a lot, actually. Um, I was the first in my province as well. I was a champion of my province in Syria, uh, okay. but in the level under 18, you know, uh, in that period. Uh, that was one of the best thing I, I really liked to do in that period. Uh, visiting friends, it was a normal life, like every place, as I told you. I will not say that we were in a disaster before the revolution in Syria, but we, like, maybe the, the life was normal, everything was, uh, safe, everything was peaceful in Syria before that. But uh, people were suffering of this problem, of the uh, uh, inequality or uh, discrimination in Syria. That was our problem. I can give you an example. If you, are, if you study in Cambridge and go back to Syria as a professor, you will be a normal teacher in a normal school, for example. 
if you study in a normal university in Syria, you can be the head of the university just because you are in Al-Ba'ath party or in this political party or, or you belong to this religious or to religion sect. So that was our problem in Syria. We don't have our rights. Uh, we didn't have our rights in, in Syria before the revolution. So uh, I can say my life was normal, like all, all young people. Right. Nothing special, actually. Fair enough. And uh, so tell us about a, a, some of the surprising things you found in Italy, be it the, um, the food, the street life, um, the politics. Uh, well, what surprised me that uh, most things surprised me that the pizza is more delicious than I imagined, actually. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'll not say that I was surprised, actually, because I was prepared or I used to, to always face new things or new experiences in my life. So I will not say that I was surprised of things. Like maybe the most thing that surprised me was that no, like a lot of people know nothing about the Middle East or about what's going on there. When I came here, it was like seven years of war and bloods in Syria. No one know about that here. They, they don't know what's the problem. What, what, what is the problem in Syria? Why this war is taking place in Syria? So maybe that was the most uh, shocking thing to me, not only surprising to me. Uh, that's it. But uh, yeah, nothing, uh, nothing special. The food is delicious. I have a lot of friends here in Italy. I create a lot of friendships. I there are kind of small Syrian community in Italy as well. So um, I don't feel that I'm uh, I'm alone. That's wonderful to hear. I'm going to follow up one more question with that before I go to Christine's question. How do you compare the um, the, grad, the college classes that you've taken. You were in college in Syria, and now you're taking classes in Italy. Uh, have you thought anything about the how those classes are taught or the uh, encouragement for debate? Well, I study I study in Italian, which is a big challenge. I, uh, one of the most things that uh, I can, or I think I can say that it's a big difference here, uh, maybe it's funny, but here the professors, they give us the, the lesson in the morning and in the lunch break, they go with us to play bing bong, for example, or table tennis later. Mm. So you don't feel that they are professors, you feel always that you are, they are friends with you, here, uh, which is something not, not existed in Syria. Professors in Syria were, were always like trying to make us feel like they are something like it's it's very difficult if i want to talk to my professor in syria i need an appointment two days or three days ago like to, to to have the opportunity to talk to him so yeah. it's like it was like a, a minister not a, a professor in, in syria so uh, the, the life is simple teaching is very and uh, my university the university of padova is one of the best 20 universities in in europe actually uh, so i the education level is very high here and uh, yeah, the education was not bad in Syria, but of course I can't compare with the education in Europe because uh, we are kind of uh, uh, late, too late in Syria in these fields. Thank you. Um, so Christine asked, uh, you, you 
you referred to it a little bit when you said Westerners don't tend to know the story of Syria um, until the more recent history. Uh, they didn't, they weren't following the, when the war really started. She's asking about the impact of the drought in Southern Syria and it's, um, and how it contributed to the start of the civil war. Do you have anything to share on? In, in which sense? Sorry, I didn't get the question. Um, she specifically asked, what was the impact of the drought in southern Syria in uh, starting the civil war? Whoa. Do you think it had climatic, uh, that climate change contributed to it? Mm, I'm not sure about that. I'm, I'm not, I will not say that I'm expert in this field actually, but uh, no, I don't think they, 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 it was a big impact or there was a, a big uh, connection between the two things there. No, honestly, I have no idea about this thing exactly. So I, I will not say that I'm an expert. <laughs> I don't want to, to act as an expert in this way. So yeah, sorry. <laughs> That's okay, fair enough. Um, do you have an opinion on the future prospects for Syria? Uh, do you have hope for a resolution to the conflict? Well, we can't live without hope first. We need hope to continue. But um, I'm kind of pessimistic, but not totally, because as I told you now, it's not our decision anymore in Syria. I believe always that if, if the USA and Russia want to, to end this war in Syria, they can end it in one minute. Yeah. But it seems like they are, they are happy for, for this because uh, I think they will not end this war until they guarantee all of their interests or future interests in Syria. Uh, I, I hope, uh, but for me and for many Syrians, we don't care anymore about who will stop the war in Syria or who will be the, like, the strongest part in Syria, Russia or the US. Or we just want to stop this bleeding or to stop this blood river in Syria. That's our, our goal today. And then in the future, we can, we can do uh, our best to, to have what we wanted uh, in the beginning or what, we, what people uh, wanted from their demonstrations from there, because the situation is very complicated. We have uh, about uh, about five, like about half million were killed in this war since the beginning of this war. We have about 200,000 disappeared or arrested in Syria. We have uh, like hundreds of dozens of thousands who are disabled now or like uh, injured or, and we have about, uh, 12 million refugees in many countries, which is like half of the population in Syria. So the situation is very complicated today in Syria. But at the same time, when I look to the, to go back to the history, to many countries faced this before, like Lebanon, like, uh, uh, like many countries faced the experience or the, of the civil war here and the past it in a way. So uh, we just uh, need to be, uh, patience maybe, or to, um, to insist that we need our rights. Just uh, to, we don't have to, to, uh, to, to, uh, to give up. Yeah. And I think in the future we will have a, a solution. I don't know what kind of solutions, but I'm sure that there is no war forever in this world. So should be a solution in the future.
Yeah, you mentioned that the um, if Russia, I forget the other country you mentioned, if Russia wanted to end the war, they could. Um, it's the question of who will remain to build the country. So curious if you are still in touch with friends that are in Syria. Um, uh, the, the issue of reconstruction in Syria is a, a, a very complicated issue. You see today, uh, if you follow the news, you will uh, definitely know the Caesar law that started to uh, uh, implement it two days ago, which is a law uh, uh, against each part or each uh, government or each country or each uh, authority that uh, cooperate with the regime. Here. So, uh, because of that, many of these many countries stopped their uh, relations now with the Syrian regime. See, this law, I think, was the, the uh, it was I, I think it was the, the best decision for Syrians. I know it will put Syrians in in a very bad economic situation, but it's already like this. The situation is bad already. But maybe it will be put Russia and the regime under pressure because Russia will not be able to reconstruct for a reconstruction process alone in Syria in the future. And uh, if as soon as there is this law in Syria, no one will will participate in this process in the future. So uh, I think uh, I think I think the. There is a deal. There is a deal in, in the in the next month, maybe. I feel this that it could be a deal in the next month or in the next two months to 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 fix this issue or to fix this problem between the two uh, countries, Russia and the and USA. Um, um, I'm waiting. All of us are waiting after it just started two days ago. This law, and because the Congress passed this law in December and it started two days ago to. And they put they put sanctions on uh, forty businessmen who are investing in Syria already. So I think no one will be able to invest or to to be a part of the reconstruction in Syria until this law is over. So let's see. Interesting. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Um, that follows on with what Gabriel and um, Cloud uh, have asked about. It's are there news outlets that you would suggest um, people interested in Syria's future follow? since US papers don't tend to publish or keep Syria in the news. Um, and, and Cloud specifically asked if you read Joshua Landis's SyriaComment.com uh, site. Uh, no, honestly, no, I don't follow this website. I will check it now. Thank you for sharing. And uh, if you want to follow the Syrian situation in the news, I think, uh, you find, I, I always advise to follow the freelance journalists, not specific uh, websites, because if you are a freelance journalist, no one will force you to write something that you, because media is business today. You know, like the media platforms write what sponsors want to, to, to publish or to promote. That's, that's the, the problem. So we don't have a neutral uh, media honestly today. But if you follow the, the freelance journalists or reporters who are on the ground or in the neighboring country of Syria, I think that's the best way to know the exact situation because they have no reason to lie in their blogs or in their uh, social media pages. So that's it. Great. 
Okay, I'm going to take the last question, um, and it sort of follows on uh, with our past, uh, our recent discussion. Is the Russian naval base in Latakia the real issue between Russia and the U.S.? Uh, it's not the real issue, no, because uh, already it was before the war. There was this uh, base, but they were using this for trading actually between uh, Russia. But now they use it to sell weapons. Yeah. This is a problem. Yeah, to, to bring weapons to Syria and to the regime. So uh, this is the exact problem in, uh, in, in this space. I think the biggest uh, uh, problem or, uh, or issue between America and Russia is the petrol and the gas fields in Syria. Who will control these fields in the future? That's the biggest uh, issue. But I don't think America will, will stand against Russia if they want to create a military base. Already they have two military in, in, like, uh, in the Mediterranean and they have three airports now in Syria, the Russians. So I don't think uh, that's a big deal for the Americans if they, uh, if they guarantee uh, uh, like future investments in the Syrian uh, gas oils and uh, gas uh, fields and uh, petrol fields. It's a good uh, geopolitical analysis of what's happening there. Thank you for that. Um, I, there is a question if you have a blog, um, if you could put that in the chat to everyone, if yeah. you do. Um, but now I'm gonna turn it over to Tim or Mark at Global Minnesota. Thank you so much for answering all those questions. You're welcome. Thank you very much to everybody, to all of you from around the world who signed up today, Danica, and Gadith from Natakalam. Thank you again to Mary and everybody at the JHR Foundation. It's been a fantastic partner for us on many different things. We hope to stay in touch with everybody. And again, you can check out the Global Minnesota website and um, find out the upcoming programs. Thank you to Tim and Carol and the whole team that put our programs together and make these possible for all of us to really really find a way to advance understanding and engagement at the international level. Thank you again to everybody.